Economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show. I'm your host, Dr. Levi Russell, and here with me are my co-hosts, Dr. Russ McCullough and philosophy professor, Dr. Justin Clark. All right. Well, you definitely still sound a little stiff there, Dr. Russell, but... That's <laughs> just how I am. <laughs> All right. Well, we are uh, honored today to have a special guest with us. In fact, uh, this guy helped me write some of the initial proposal for the Gortney Institute. So... Uh, it's nice to have uh, Dr. Victor Klar on from uh, Florida Gulf Coast University. Uh, he's an associate professor of economics there in Fort Myers, where he holds the BB&T Distinguished Professorship in Free Enterprise. Uh, he's also an affiliate scholar with the Acton Institute, who we've done some work with and our, uh, get a lot of content from the Acton Institute. So he's a scholar there. He's also a member of the Foundation for Economic Education's faculty network. That is FEE, which... Uh, Dr. Russell's actually trying to do some student programming with fee. So uh, Victor Clark is uh, very <coughs> well connected in, in these various circles. Um, he's had a long, impressive record of publications, including his influential book, Economics in a Christian Perspective, Theory, Policy, and Life Choices. And that's actually in its 10th printing, even going into Chinese. Uh, he has a new book that we'll talk about a little bit today, The Keynesian Revolution and the Rise of Economic Materialism, We're All Dead. Uh, sounds interesting. Uh, so it's a, a book about economic death, I think, but we'll, we'll get more from Victor on that later. And um, so Victor Clark has done a lot of analysis with so-called dismal science uh, of economics, and uh, he combines a sobering analysis and Christian perspectives and principles uh, to give us a vision of hope. And he's also the author of Fair Trade, where we're going to kind of springboard on. So Victor, welcome to the show. Hi, Russ. Great to be here. <laughs> it's great to have you. Um, I have heard your talk on fair trade before, and I thought it would be a great thing for our listeners to think about some of these developing countries and are we really helping them when we uh, buy products that were done with fair trade marked on the outside of the coffee package? What do you think? Yeah, so I don't know about you, Russ, but um, I like to think of myself as a good person, and I like it when you think of me as a good person, and I like it when my students think of me as a good person. And I have to, I have to stop you there. I actually like, <laughs> I prefer to think of myself as a sinner because then the the bar is so low. Um, so I kind of take that from the biblical insight. So I, 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 I don't know. I, I like the, the center perspective. But nonetheless, I, I hear where you're going with this. And I agree with you completely. Notice that I didn't say flawless person <laughs> <laughs> or a person without sin. But I still like to think, what about, are you okay with the adjective decent? A uh, decent, person? yeah. I think decent, <laughs> decent uh, maybe is a nice twist, so. Or maybe somebody who is a, a, a sinful person, but uh, aspires to more. Yeah, right. there we go. Okay, <laughs> that's getting better all the time. All right. So, um, yeah, there's, there's significant branding in the retail coffee market. And some of that branding involves labels like certified organic or 
rainforest friendly. Sometimes you'll see that listed as bird friendly because it means it's shade grown and rainforests aren't destroyed in the production of those coffees. But the one that you see by far the most often is the fair trade label. And fair trade works a little differently in the U.S. compared to the way that it works in the rest of the world. But I'll try to speak to both of them. The idea is if you are in Walmart or at Publix or at your local coffee bar, wherever you happen to do your local grocery shopping, if you see coffee that's got that fair trade seal on it, then you're getting an assurance as a decent consumer, decent consumer. <laughs> you're getting an assurance that that coffee was grown with certain guarantees that you can't directly observe, but because you see that label on there, you're supposed to trust that those guarantees have been respected. So you could think of that fair trade coffee label as sort of working like for an earlier generation, like the good housekeeping seal of approval. Mm -hmm. And that means something to some of us who are older, and it may not mean anything at all to, to people who are younger, listeners you've got that are younger. But the guarantees are pretty straightforward, and they all sound great. No child labors used in the production of that certified coffee. No rainforests are used in the production of that certified coffee. Everybody's paid at least the local minimum wage. And the main one that gets the most attention is that all of the growers participating in the fair trade network receive a guaranteed minimum price per pound for that coffee. Now, if the price of coffee in the global market goes above that minimum, those growers get the global price. But if it falls below, and it does sometimes, when coffee growers have a great growing season, then the price of that coffee in commodity markets, because there's so much of it, that price will plummet. And in that case, then the growers who are part of the fair trade network, they get a guaranteed minimum price per pound that they get when they sell their coffee to their partner fair trade importer, who's located in some place like Boston or San Francisco or wherever their partner importer is located. So it's a, it's a deficiency payment uh, plan that they've had in agriculture for different support systems, in a sense, making up the difference. Yeah, and if you think about it from the grower's perspective, if if I have a temporary disruption in my income, that's not as painful for me as it is for somebody who is currently living on a couple of dollars a day. If you don't know for sure at the end of your growing season, if you're a coffee grower in a poor country, what the price of that coffee will be at the end of the season, it's really difficult to make plans. And if that price of coffee plummets, then it can make it really difficult. So one way you can think of the fair trade agreement is it's a way for coffee growers who face a lot of risk because coffee prices are pretty volatile and they move around a lot. It's attractive to join the network because one thing you get to do as a grower is you get to have somebody else take over the risk in terms of what that price is going to be at the end of the season. Right. Well, this all sounds too good to be true. What, what could possibly be wrong with a system like that? Well, I think that caring for the poor is very important. And as a Christian, I'm told that when I care for the poor, by extension, I'm caring for my master. And if I'm caring for Jesus as I care for the poor, then I want to make sure that as a caring Christian who wants to do the right thing and be Christ-like in my actions, it's important to try to do that caring for the poor as effectively as I possibly can. Because as a steward, 
of God's rich resources. If when I'm serving the poor, I'm serving the master, then I don't want to do it in a haphazard, slipshod way. I want to care for the poor as generously and effectively as I possibly can. And so when I talk about fair trade coffee and when I write about it, I write about it and talk about it from that perspective. I'm caring for the poor. For Christians, that's daunting because I'm also, by extension, caring for the master. How am I doing and how effective am I in serving my master? Whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. Absolutely. So if you've ever done any experiments in your local coffee shop, you've probably noticed that when coffees have that seal on the outside, the price at retail is more expensive. Now, some of that might be because there are monitoring and compliance costs that are necessary because when you get those guarantees, right, no child labor, local minimum wage, somebody's got to be entrusted with going in and investigating the local growers to make sure that the coffee that you're buying with the good person, caring, decent person seal on it really is grown under the conditions that are promised. So fair trade, whether it's in the U.S. or elsewhere in the world, fair trade always has an independent certifying agency that's responsible for going in and periodically making sure that the coffee is grown under the conditions specified. So the price at retail that you pay that's almost always higher, it could be because of the guarantee. It could be because of the monitoring and compliance costs. Another reason it might be a little higher is because the coffees do tend to be pretty decent coffee. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about that in a moment. But another thing you might be paying for is what we economists call price discrimination. Ooh, discrimination. Now, for, for listeners of yours who are not familiar with price discrimination, we encounter it all the time. It's when a seller of a good or a service can sort of sort out who is who, then it's perfectly legal under the right circumstances to charge a premium price to some people and charge the regular price to everybody else. And, and ultimately, I like to tell my students that it likely helps out poorer people rather than richer people, because usually the poorer people are going to have the opportunity to buy the good at a, local, at a lower price to with richer people paying a little bit higher is typically how most price discrimination schemes go. That's exactly right. If you can show a student ID, right. <laughs> then you get a break on the price and the rest of us pay the posted price. Yeah. If you happen to be a prematurely gray economics professor in <laughs> Southwest Florida, <laughs> you may get the gift of paying the senior price for a cup of coffee at McDonald's, but let's face it, that's a, that's a two-sided gift. <laughs> Yes. If somebody thinks that you're a snowbird or a retiree because of your hair color, yeah, maybe a, a discounted price on that McDonald's coffee is, uh, is is attractive, but at the same time, maybe it's a little insulting. Yeah, I tried not to take personal offense, but this just happened to be over the weekend, actually, at the cash register. Oh, uh, she's I'm... asking, oh, does, does AAA or senior discount apply? And I'm like, oh, what? Come on, am I, am I already that older? And she's like, well, don't I, I, I ask it to everybody. She, she patched yeah, it over. Right. She patched things over real fast. Like, oh, whether somebody's 20-something or not, I ask the same question. I'm like, yeah, right. I'm done. It's welcome, welcome to the club. Uh, <laughs> welcome to the club, Russ. So, so anyway, there's been a lot of, when I dug into Fair Trade Coffee about 10 years ago, 
I was surprised at how much marketing literature, literature there is that tries to figure out if you are a caring consumer who wants to do the right thing, just how much more you're willing to pay if a coffee is labeled as fair trade right. compared to coffee that's not labeled as fair trade. So mm -hmm. European researchers, they've done these cool experiments, Russ. They go into university student unions and they tinker with the relative price at the coffee shop of the coffee that's labeled as fair trade and the coffee that's not labeled in, as fair trade. Hmm. And they're able to get a really good sense of just how much more people will pay for coffee if it is supposed to be going to a good cause, in this case, caring for poor coffee growers. Hmm. And no big surprise, people will pay more to do the right thing, but they won't pay infinitely more to do the right thing. <laughs> right, right. Everything has its price, right? Well, so, almost everything. There's a really cool anecdote in a book by Tim Harford, and the book is called The Undercover Economist. And The Undercover Economist investigates fair trade a little bit, and he tells an anecdote from Costa Coffee, and Harford's British. So Costa works really well for him, and he loves cappuccino. And he noticed an interesting thing, that when you adjust for the exchange rate, the certified fair trade cappuccino was about 25 cents more per cup than a non-certified cappuccino. Hmm. And if you do the math and you know anything about wholesale coffee prices, you know that it doesn't take a whole lot of coffee to make one cappuccino. Mm. And if Costa was charging an extra 25 cents per mm. cup, a whole lot more money should be going to the fair trade coffee growers yeah. <laughs> than they're actually getting according to their literature. Hmm. So Harford's a reporter. He writes for the Financial Times of London, and he just contacted Costa's corporate offices and said, hey, I've done the arithmetic here, and if you're charging me and everybody else an extra 25 cents for the certified fair trade coffee, these growers should be getting a lot more money than <laughs> what even your own literature says they should be getting. Mm -hmm. And Costa's response was that they couldn't justify the price difference. And they eventually made the prices of both coffees the same. Hmm. So the way that Harford talks about this anecdote in the book is he said that if you were a British coffee drinker like him and you walked in and you ordered the fair trade cappuccino, you sent two messages to Costa. The first message they weren't that interested in, which is, I'm a decent person and I think fair trade is a cause that should be supported. The other message you were also sending, sending that apparently they were much more interested in is, <laughs> I don't mind paying extra for this cappuccino as long as you give me a compelling reason to do so. Mm. So there's an opportunity for profit-seeking retailers, and almost all fair trade certified coffee is sold by for-profit entities. There's an opportunity for them to tinker with the price and maybe raise it up above what they would have be able to charge otherwise if they use branding and positioning in the mind of the consumer mm -hmm. so that you think that you're getting not only a delicious cup of coffee, but something else along with that cup. Maybe it's charity or maybe it's social justice. And if people are willing to pay extra for those things, then profit-seeking retailers can take advantage of those caring consumers who want to do the right thing. So did the, did the retailers essentially have an upper hand in terms of knowledge that they were able to exploit? Because to me, the market answer would be, oh, we can get more for our fair trade coffee 
and prices would have eventually pushed up higher for the fair trade coffee at the wholesale level if there was uh, not asymmetric information across the markets. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really interesting question. And I can tell that you must have studied some economics somewhere <laughs> along the way. Yeah, I've done my fair share, so to speak. If you, if you go out and you look at the numbers in terms of the price per pound the growers actually get all the way at the other end of the supply chain, the extra money you and I are paying at retail doesn't seem to make it all the way to the growers. Because as I mentioned earlier, if the market price is above the minimum guarantee, the growers get the market price and then they get an additional 20 cents. So regardless of what happens to the price of coffee, the growers always get 20 cents per pound that they can direct toward projects in their local villages. And they might be water resource projects. They might be education projects. They might be nutrition or medical projects. No matter what happens to the global price of coffee on commodity markets, they always get this extra 20 cents. So it is risk-free. I mean, that, there's a bit of a trade-off there that the growers are getting a risk-free amount, whereas the retailer is taking on some risk and might face future competition that would drive down fair trade prices or whatever. Yeah, but here's the, here's the big secret of fair trade that most people do not know. Just like it's costly for me to buy an insurance policy, whether it's life insurance or medical insurance, it's really costly for the growers to get access to this offloading of risk this coffee price insurance policy that they join when they join the fair trade network. So mm -hmm. for instance, Russ, just to apply. So suppose you're a cooperative of poor coffee growers living in Latin America somewhere or Tanzania someplace, and you've heard about fair trade and it sounds pretty attractive because you get to walk away from risk and risk is bad. The initial application fee and the amounts are officially given in euros. So I'll speak in ballpark U.S. dollar numbers. For poor coffee growers, the initial application fee is about 800 bucks just to try to join the network and sell your coffee under the conditions of fair trade. Now, hmm. I don't know about you. <laughs> my gut instinct way to immediately try to help desperately poor coffee growers right. would not be to say, okay, well, we'll help you, but you've got to pony up $800 first and then we'll think about it. And extreme poverty is usually measured around two to let's call it even up to $3 a day. Dollar twenty-five, two dollars yeah, a day. Yeah. yeah, even let's be really generous and say three dollars a day. Right, be generous. That's a year's income at a thousand bucks, let's call it. And so, yeah. yeah. And then it doesn't stop there because once you've applied, just like once you paid the college admission, <laughs> college application <laughs> admission fee, there's no guarantee that a college will take you. Mm. There's no guarantee that there's a willing buyer on the other side of the market who thinks that your beans are good enough mm. <laughs> that that buyer on the other side of the market is willing to take you on as a seller in its network, as a supplier mm. in its network. Right. In fact, in one infamous case, there were some Oaxacan coffee growers who searched for Russ. Once they joined the network, they looked for eight years. Oh, my. To find a coffee importer and roaster <laughs> who was willing to buy their coffee beans under the guaranteed conditions of fair trade. Wow. Okay. All right. Well, this looks like a good place to take our break. And I think we've got a few more things to cover on 
fair trade on after we come back to see if it's all doom and gloom and like maybe we should start boycotting fair trade or whether Victor gives his opinion that uh, there is some hope for this uh, for this industry. So and then we'll get into your other your other book as well. So we'll be back with you in 30 seconds. Please visit our website at 123povertysucks.org. There you will find our events, blog, and our swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123povertysucks or on Facebook at Gortney Institute for updates on our activities and research. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. Don't forget to check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.123povertysucks.org. Welcome back. Uh, so I wanted to make a few comments about some of what uh, Victor's telling us with regard to the, the idea that this is analogous to uh, agricultural policy in the U.S. And what's interesting is that at the beginning there, it sounded a lot like our, you know, we call it price support program, which when, when the price of a commodity is very, very, very low by market standards, there is a basically a loan provided to the producer. And so um, it's called marketing loan program. The producer then gets a loan from the government, which they can either repay with the product itself, or they can just repay the loan. Um, and we've kind of changed to a system now where uh, the government just gives them the payment that would be the difference between the, the market price and the loan price, which would be above the market price at that point in time, mm -hmm. uh, when these prices are really, really low. And so, you know, we don't see market prices that low, very often, but this is considered to be sort of the basic safety net for agriculture in the U.S. And what's interesting to me is that as, as Victor went through the, the conversation there, I started thinking, okay, this sounds less and less like an actual, you know, what I would consider an agricultural price support program because, you know, producers don't have to pay anything for mm -hmm. that. It's just there. It's not insurance. It's, you know, something that they get for sure. And I mean, heck, it doesn't even sound like Victor, it doesn't even sound like this thing is even insurance because it's not even that I'm paying a premium and then I guaranteed I get this reduction in my risk. I mean, I, I just get an opportunity. You know, I get, I get an option. I get if like an option on insurance, maybe. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's a really, really good point. Another big secret, so I'm you know, breaking some secrets about fair trade coffee. One of them is, just like I told you that there was this infamous case where some growers in Mexico looked eight years for a willing buyer. Even people who are champions of fair trade coffee and they think it's great, they will confess to you openly that in a typical growing season, only about, let's say, 35% of the coffee grown by fair trade coffee growers actually gets purchased as fair trade. 
with the extra 20 cents per pound wow. because there simply isn't a sufficiently large market of people willing wow. to buy the guaranteed certified coffees. The other two thirds on average every season gets dumped into the conventional coffee market. market rate. So, wow. so you might have drunk a cup of coffee today that wasn't certified, but chances are excellent that it was grown by a fair trade coffee grower, but just dumped into the conventional coffee market. Which means the, they would have paid the minimum, those other things that come along with the fair trade stamp in terms of uh, their people got paid a minimum wage or whatever, that would have still went on. But the grower is actually taking a big hit having to dump it at market rates. That is exactly right. And so one way to think about what's happening with fair trade coffee is just behind the scenes, everybody's trying to make the fair trade model work for themselves. So like we talked about earlier, if you're an American roaster or wholesaler or retailer, there's some pretty good money to be made by using the fair trade brand. And in fact, it's pretty valuable. If I'm a, if I'm a wholesaler in the United States and I want to use that fair trade seal, it costs me about 10 cents per, per pound to license it. So just like you buy, if you buy a Major League Baseball hat yeah. or a certified NCAA jersey and it's got that iridescent logo, the, the sellers have to pay for that license. And that's exactly what happens with the sellers of fair trade. They have to pay, not the growers, they have to pay fair trade, fair trade international or fair trade USA, 10 cents per pound for the use of that seal but they do it because it's cost effective because when they've got that seal on there they can charge more than 10 cents per pound mm -hmm. because it looks attractive to people who want to do the right thing and care for the poor right so victor can i maybe ask if i have your argument correct here because i think it might be in in two parts and i'd like to have this pithy uh two-parter to say to people and maybe some <laughs> of our listeners would too so maybe the first claim is something like uh, when you as a consumer pay a premium for fair trade coffee, that premium isn't actually reaching uh, the end of the line and the poorest of the poor who in your head you think you are helping when you purchase fair trade co uh, coffee. And secondly, even if that money were to reach the very end of the line, you still aren't helping uh, the very poorest of the poor because the very nature of the fair trade program prices out the very poorest of the poor from applying for fair trade status. And Is that correct? To, yeah, I mean, you were exactly right on both points, but to your second point, um, there are some things we haven't even talked about. One is, yeah, it's $800 to apply, but depending on the size of your, of your plan, uh, not plantation, because most coffees, most fair trade coffee is grown by small scale growers. Depending on the size of your enterprise, that monitoring and compliance that happens annually by the independent certifier, the growers pay, depending on the scale of their, of their operation, it might be between, again, adjusting for exchange rates, just ballpark numbers here. It might cost those same growers who paid $800 to apply, it might cost them between $1,300 and $4,000 per year because they're the ones that pony up the money for the monitoring and the certification compliance visits. Hmm. Right. Sounds like a couple people are getting their beaks wet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. The other thing, the other thing that's really interesting, and you can go to Fair Trade USA or Fair Trade International and check out the numbers. 
the sellers really want to contain costs. So that's why the growers pay the certification and monitoring costs, not the importers. And the importers, they want to do the right thing, but they don't want to do it if it's too expensive for them to do it. So in one recent year, the nation of Peru, which has per capita income of about 6,000 bucks these days, they supplied about 25% of fair trade coffee that was imported into the U.S. Okay, so $6,000, about 25%. Tanzania, where per capita income per year is about 500 bucks, they supplied about 4% of the total coffee that was sold as fair trade to carrying coffee consumers in the United States. Now, if you really wanted to help the poorest coffee growers, you should buy fair trade coffee from the poorest coffee growers. And that would be places like Tanzania, not places that by global standards are relatively rich like Mexico or Peru. So why doesn't more coffee come from Tanzania? And it's not because the coffee's not good. If you've ever had Tanzanian pea berry, you know that those coffees are great. The problem is, it's a long way from Tanzania to Boston. <laughs> and coffee growers in places like Peru have been growing a lot of coffee that's pretty high quality, and they've been doing it for a long time already. And so in terms of the North American supply chain, it's just more reliable and it's lower cost to source coffees from a nearby neighbor like Peru rather than from an African neighbor like Tanzania. So there are these weird distributional effects that you simply can't know anything about if you're trying to do the right thing down at your local coffee shop or down in your supermarket. So in summary, we should boycott fair trade coffee. Is that, is that what you're saying, Dr. Clark? <laughs> You know, that's... Or am I too thick-headed to get this? No, no. I just I maybe end on um, you know. It, it sounds like some good trickles there, but not as much as we think. So an awareness of the consumer uh, might look for direct distribution channels. Might be one way that a, a caring person could overcome this if they directly buy. I don't know. Somehow bypass the the very commercial. Fair See, I think I think this but. is the problem, right? Is that you've got kind of a coast theorem thing here, where there's just a cost of this transaction. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a cost of information between you and that grower in Tanzania, and there's just no easy way to fix it. it you know that that doesn't involve some kind of. I mean, so you know, the, the Tanzanian farmer is bearing the cost of being outside of a market no matter what. And mm-hmm. just by right. putting a label on the coffee doesn't mean that, you know, maybe you're going to guarantee them a higher price in theory, but they're still bearing a cost because there's a risk to them getting into the program. So should we, should we pick it outside of fair trade USA, Russ? I, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think one way to think about it is you can think of at, at best fair trade coffee is a charity and as charities mm-hmm. go, it's a really inefficient one. Because you and I pay a lot of extra money at retail for that coffee. And the research, the data are pretty clear. Almost none of that extra money you and I, the caring consumer that we pay at retail, almost none of that's actually trickling all the way through the supply chain to the growers that we want most to help. So effectively, we could be more effective, buy non-fair trade coffee, take the premium, and send it to a worthwhile charity that you have researched and know 
is pretty effective right. on administrative costs, that might be a more effective way to help the poor farmers in a developing country. Yeah, every dollar that you spend on anything and every dollar that you donate to charity is a dollar you're not spending or donating in some other use. And yeah. so you could pay extra money at retail for fair trade coffee, but man, maybe there might be a more effective way for you to care for the poor and by extension, right. our master. And maybe it's simply buy the coffee that you like most and that fits your budget best and then take the money you've got left over. And I think you're right. Find somebody who's working more directly with the poor coffee growers that you want most to help so that they can see more immediate effects mm -hmm. of your generosity and your charity and your wanting to do the right thing. And one of those listeners would be my wife's uh, charity, Education and More in Guatemala. I've had some great Guatemalan coffee. She doesn't work directly with Guatemalan coffee growers, but nonetheless helps uh, rural villages there with education and they do pair fair trade wages for uh, weaving products. So I'll just leave it at that. Um, let's, uh, let's roll into your other book here. Um, can you give us a, a thumbnail sketch of what's going on with your, with your book that has recently come out, uh, at least to the libraries and uh, to be forthcoming uh, in the spring, I think you said, to, to yeah. the masses. Yeah, look for it in paperback, $22.99, available on Amazon Prime with Amazon pre-order price guarantee. And you know, it's perfect for every single listener who needs to do some Christmas shopping. This is the perfect time to run out. <laughs> yeah, so we have this new book. It's published by Palgrave Macmillan. And we were really excited about that. I wrote it with a co-author named Greg Forster who's at Trinity International University in Illinois. And we were concerned that economics has gotten off track. And when I say that, I don't mean that math is, that the economics is too mathematical or too quantitative or uses too much data. I actually think that all those things are really valuable and we learn a lot about how the world works and the, how it doesn't. We're not only articulating theories, but going out and putting those theories to the test. So I think all that stuff is really valuable and really useful. But most economists today wouldn't understand that economics historically has already had deep roots in moral theory. And economics always presupposed that people had a purpose, and they were trying to do things that were not only were not exclusively limited to making money, being able to consume goods and services and enjoying leisure time. Historically, whether it was Aristotle or Catholic scholars like Aquinas and other economists from the school of Salamanca, they understood that we were economizing human beings, but we were always doing those things as stepping stones to whatever our greater, higher, nobler purpose might be as we live out our lives. Right. Even the word economics came from home economics, essentially, of managing the home. Right. Good stewardship. And even that word, one of these cool Greek words that has about five different meanings. And one of them is economics, the way that you and I talk about it and what I teach in class. But it also includes things like being a virtuous manager of your resources. And it even includes this idea that, hey, if I make a virtuous choice today, then if I make a series of virtuous choices, then over time, I change my wiring and I wake up one day and I'm a more virtuous person because I've developed the habits of being virtuous. And that's even included in this original economics work. 
So um, what we, the argument that we make in the book is that economics got pretty far off track in the early 20th century. And it was already headed in that direction, but ultimately it was John Maynard Keynes who not only created this new, new half of economics that we call macro, but he really changed the way that economists talk to each other about what a human being is, what we maximize or what we try to avoid. And we've left the, the more transcendent ideas that human beings might be purposeful and after ends that are something beyond consumption or employment or long-term economic growth, we've sort of forgotten about those, or if we do remember them, we don't really talk about those anymore. And so <clears throat> does it, are you giving a uh, normative uh, what we should do uh, knowing this type of information, or is it a, meant to be an awakening of, hey, we got a lot of work ahead of us? Is it a kind of a call out to uh, economists in a, of sorts, or is it for people to have a newer understanding or broader understanding. Us, of we actually think that we think that it's a mix of both. We think that not only has the profession gotten off track and it needs to think more carefully and more intentionally about what human beings are about. We also think that economists were so good at communicating economics to the public in the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, that when you talk to people today and you talk about what economics is and is not, you and I know as economists that it's about all kinds of choices, how many hours to work, whether to pursue a, a, a second career, how, ma whether, how many times to hit the snooze alarm every morning. We know mm -hmm. that all, all choices and all decisions are economic ones. Um, but most people, the public at large, when they hear that, I don't know about you, when they hear that I'm an economist, they want to know things about, so is the recession coming? They want to know, so if I win the lottery, should I take it up as a lump sum up front or should I take the annuity of payments? They don't really understand that it's about all kinds of decisions and the, as, as you point out, the good stewardship of your life. Right. Well, I think it's awesome that you're kind of bringing this up and, and uh, maybe it'd be a book we can really look tightly at, but uh, the Gorton Institute has brought in Dr. Clark here, who's with us on the, the podcast as our philosophy professor uh, and uh, studying ethics, morality, and all the things, because I think that stuff is, is important. And a lot of uh, what I've learned, even since I started full-time here at Ottawa in the last 10 years, um, I always felt that way, but I start to see this resurgence of, of people thinking about these issues. And I think that's part of why we started this podcast, that we can think more broadly with issues. And uh, we're certainly excited to have Justin on board to uh, bring that to students to start thinking about meaning and purpose and these decisions. And that uh, that's really, uh, as you stated, what economics is all about. Baker, I had a question about, uh, I think, the title is great. Am I correct that the subtitle is We Are All Dead? Yeah, and so. that's where that's where marketing meets uh, <laughs> what the authors wanted to do. <laughs> we thought We're All Dead would have been a killer title. No pun intended. Killer title. We're All right. Dead. Right. But, uh, because, because Paul Gray McMillan really wanted to target primarily an academic audience, mm. and he persuaded us to move We're All Dead into the subtitle. Okay. Can you tell us, uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure I know exactly where you're, where the joke comes from, but uh, for any listeners who don't, can you maybe tell us a little bit about where that We Are All Dead comes from? Sure. So the Keynesian Revolution got really popular in 1936 when Keynes published his most famous book, The General Theory of Employment, Interest, and Money. 
And he was the guy who, for the first time, said, government doesn't need to balance its budget. If we've got people who are unemployed and hurting right now, then we need to do everything that we can to get them back to work. And so if factory orders are down, doggone it, government should step in and place some factory orders (laughs) and get people back to work. Now, most of Keynes' critics knew that in, in the long run, this was really bad medicine because then you invest in production that maybe people aren't going to want 10 or 15 years from now. Um, You you basically manipulate prices in a way that may slow down long-term growth and create fewer opportunities in the future for our kids and our grandkids. Well, Keynes had been making this argument throughout the 20s and 30s. This wasn't a new argument when the book came out. He'd already been making it, and he'd said as much in uh, 1923 And when his critics in 1923 said, well, Keynes, this is bad medicine, man. If we do these things, we're going to have slower growth. We might have a bunch of inflation. All kinds of bad things might happen. And Keynes' response was, yeah, but that's in the long run. And in the long run, we're all dead. (laughs) And what he meant by that is our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren, they can deal with the $21 trillion deficit we've accumulated. They can be the ones who deal with slower rates of growth, but the humane thing to do is to care for people today if we've got the ability to care for them today. And I've interpreted it as that we're always, and I think the neo-Keynesians of uh, Paul Krugman and other people would say, we're always in a short run, so there's always something we can do today that will hope that will help improve or get things going where maybe they'll ultimately go in the long run. Is that a fair assessment you think? Yeah, there's no question that the main, the main point of the general theory, this 1936 legendary Keynes book, the main point was, yeah, over time prices redirect resources to where they're most highly valued, but that's almost never the case, we're almost always in the exceptions. So we're in short run disequilibrium situations 99.9% of the time. And so it's a little like trying to fine tune the economy and keep it on course when it's being blown around and buffeted by all these external forces and shocks. Right. And so then we get things like uh, Hayek's uh, challenge back to Keynes on, well, it eventually comes to roost and maybe things like the financial crisis back in 2008, where low interest, got to have a house, got to have a house, got to have a house type policies coming from the government and ultimately led to a property bubble that popped on us and trickled into other areas. And you've really touched on what the second half of the book is. The second half of the book is, so we still have free market economists, right? You had Milton Friedman and the Chicago economists. You had people like Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises from Vienna. And they understood that over the long term, this was bad medicine. And maybe it's also bad medicine in the short term as well. But um, why weren't they effective in beating back these Keynesian ideas? And I think there are a couple of reasons. One is that, Hayek was really distracted with his own masterpiece, this two-volume book called A Pure Theory of Capital that didn't come out until 1944. Mm. So Hayek didn't write a book, even a book review of the general theory between 1936 and 1944. And Hayek really thought his once and for all refutation of Keynes would be in this 1944 book, but it was just way Mm. too late, way too late. That's interesting. I never, so you're saying he could have, Maybe had he not been preoccupied with that, challenged 
what what turned into big time public opinion. It kind of almost took over once it was in the politicians' hands, where Keynes empowered them to say, "Oh, you can fix things with policy, and you get to play around and tinker with things that he might have been able to at least tamp down some of that." Yeah, there's even some really cool personal correspondence that I didn't find. Somebody else did. But Hayek was writing to his good friend Gottfried Haberler at Harvard at the time. And Hayek, again, wasn't really dealing directly in a timely way with the general theory. And when he wrote Haberler, he said a couple of things that are really interesting. One is, boy, this book is really tough going. I kind of get to the middle of the book and I get stuck. And so Hayek was having a really tough time reading all the way through from cover to cover the general theory. And Hayek's right. It's a tough go. It's a tough go. If you've ever tried to read the general theory, it's tough to work your way through that book. The other thing that Hayek said is that he didn't treat it in a timely way. Again, this is writing to Haberler. He didn't treat it in a timely way because he thought that maybe by the time that he did, Keynes would have already changed his mind and been on to Keynes' new big idea. And so you get this slow response from the Austrians that included people like Hayek and Mises who just never dealt in a timely way with the Keynesian revolution. Right. And I I thought some of the private writings, maybe Hayek said that if Keynes wouldn't have died so early, they might have had, he was maybe would have, I don't know if retracted is the right word because I think he was pretty proud of all that, but might have agreed with some of Hayek, but he actually died young. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, Keynes published a general theory in 1936, and within about one decade, Keynes was no longer with us. Mm-hmm. So it was left to uh, the successors of Keynes to continue to interpret the general theory and communicate it to the rest of us. Yeah, and I think um, Hayek almost felt like, I think he would have agreed with me on some of the points later or something. I. I thought I'd either seen a video or maybe read something along those lines, but yeah, it's also, it's also really interesting to think about other things that were happening, other social movements that were happening at the same time. This was the, this was sort of the, the high period of the eugenics movement. Mm. And a lot of people may not know that not only did Keynes want to plan the economy, he also wanted to plan your family. Mm. And in fact, he was the associate director of the British eugenics society or a couple of years late in his life, and he pronounced eugenics as the most useful part of sociology that exists. Mm-hmm. In hmm. fact, there, these, there are things that you can't really make up. He was a member of something called, and there's a great history scholar, a guy named Phil Magnus, who has really worked on Keynes and the eugenics episode. There was a club in Britain called the Malthusian League. <laughs> mm. And for, for listeners who don't know, Thomas Malthus is a classical economist who was pretty concerned about population growth. Well, so was Keynes as a eugenicist. So were people like H.G. Wells. So were people like Margaret Sanger, who many people know as the founder of Planned Parenthood. They were all really concerned about the pressing problem of unconstrained population growth. Yeah. All right. Well, I think I have another meeting to get to, and uh, that looks like a great place to wrap. Anyway, I think uh, getting (laughs) into the eugenics thing, and we'll we'll definitely include some of that in the in the show notes. And uh, Victor, it's been great to have you on. It's obvious uh, we need to have you on again at some point in the future. So appreciate you taking the time out today. Thanks, Victor. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate it. All right. So on behalf of the Gorton Institute, I'd like to thank you all for listening. If you 
feel so inclined and like what you hear to uh, add a subscription to your podcast and that helps us rise in the ranks and increase our uh, listeners. Um, so please do that for us. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.